Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Hey there, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much, Bible Center family, for tuning in online and also tuning in on TV. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Our prayers are with you through this holiday season. Well, what a year 2020 has been. A global pandemic, a national election that we'll remember for the rest of our lives, Uh, online school, having to wear masks. If you're looking for a special Christmas ornament for yourself or a Christmas ornament for somebody else uh, this year, there's several that I'd like to recommend to you. Here's one, 2020, I love you more than toilet paper. Maybe that one's for you. Uh, This is one of my personal favorites, the dumpster fire, 2020. Uh, And then, of course, there's just 2020, a year to remember social distancing, drive-by parties, quarantine, travel bans, uh, curbside pickup, uh, sports canceled, all the things that we'll remember and our children and grandchildren will remember forever. But I want to ask you today, how are you doing going into the holidays? How are you doing right there where you sit? Now, for some of you, you're doing great. We saw you go ahead and put up your Christmas lights uh, back in like September or October. This is one of your favorite times of the year. But for others of you, maybe you're not doing quite so well. Maybe you're wondering if you should even pull out the Christmas tree at all and just simply fast forward to the new year. For others of you, maybe the reason that you seem like you're excited for the holiday season is just simply to cover up some of the apprehension down inside. Maybe it's just to cover up some of the fear and some of the pain from this past year. Do we really need another Christmas? Well, actually, I personally believe that we do, and and I believe that more than ever before this year, we have the opportunity to emphasize the true meaning and and the deep foundation of Christmas itself. Today, I want to give you three reasons why the world needs Christmas, and not only why the world needs Christmas today and why God invites us to celebrate today, but But more importantly, why the world needed that very first Christmas, why the world needed Jesus to come. Today's message fits in an entire series of sermons that we're doing uh, on our membership statement of faith. As we're rolling out a new, more robust uh, member statement of faith, we're going through the various doctrines of the faith, and and today we're at that doctrine of the fall and effects of sin Uh, But my goal today is that we'll understand how lost we really are and how important it is, how much we really needed a Savior. Today's message is entitled, Why the World Needs Christmas. Here's what I want you to know. Number one, I'd like you to know this. Why does the world need Christmas? First of all, because of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Now, a quick glance at 2020 will convince just about anybody that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that has moved away from the reign of God, and it's come under the dominion of other powers. It's almost like our entire world, in some way, is it's allergic to God. According to the Bible, there's a reason for this, and all the way back in the book of Genesis, we see it's because of Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3 is the sad account of how the human race fell into sin. 
Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, and way inside, they desired to be like God. Therefore, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that from which God had said not to eat, and they thought they knew better than God, and they chose to disobey God. Well, we know from the book of Genesis that the results were tragic. Adam and Eve, they expected illumination, but instead they experienced humiliation. They feared God's presence, and because they were scared of God, they threw one another under the bus. Adam said it was Eve's fault. You can just imagine as Eve pointed to Adam and said it was his fault, the serpent was cursed. Adam and Eve experienced the curse of sin and death entered the world. So why did the world need that very first Christmas? Well, it's simply because, first of all, of Adam and Eve. Their sinful nature has been passed on to you and to me. Here's something I'd like you to think about. Christmas doesn't exist because we need vacations, although those are nice, or we need presents and extra church services. Christmas exists because we have sinned. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man, and death through sin, and this way death came upon all people, for all have sinned. As we work through as a church our member's statement of faith, it's uh, particularly this section on the fall and effects of sin. Here's what our elders have written. Here's what our pastors and elders have written uh, under this section of our sinfulness. God created Adam and Eve in perfect holiness and gave them clear commandments. Eve was tempted and deceived by the serpent, and both Adam and Eve disobeyed and rebelled, willingly sinning against God. You can see all of this on our website under the series page, or you can go to biblecenterchurch.com forward slash MSF, that's Member Statement of Faith, and you can see this all there. And then we see under number two, spiritual death, physical death, and the sinful nature entered the world through Adam's fall and are passed on to all humans. Every person is totally and morally depraved, spiritually dead, and separated from God. Each person is hopelessly and helplessly lost without God's intervention. Now this curse of sin, this effect of sin, not only passed on Adam and Eve and the serpent, but all of creation in some way bears the scars of the curse of sin. All of creation, Romans chapter 8 says, groans to this day for deliverance. The creation longs to be redeemed. Our world is a very beautiful place. Caden and I went hunting just yesterday. I love getting out in the woods. I love the woods of West Virginia. I love this entire Appalachian region. But even though the world is a beautiful place, even nature itself is a very violent place. God says the world is broken. We've tried to capture this in our member statement of faith under, uh, under the third section. It says, God commissioned Adam and Eve to rule over creation. However, through their sin, all of creation is broken, cursed, and fallen. Humanity's relationship with God, with one another, and with creation itself is broken beyond human compare. 
Sin, suffering, and death have marred all of creation. And so this season, when you're asking yourself, why does the world need Christmas? Why do we really need Christmas? Let's, let's get past just the shopping and, and the cookies and the food and the Christmas trees and all the things that I love except for the shopping. Let's go back past all of those things and remember the reason we needed Christmas is first of all because of Adam and Eve. Number two, why does the world need Christmas? Why did you need Christmas? Why did I need Christmas? Well, it's because of our actions. First of all, because of Adam and Eve, but secondly, because of our actions. We say this. This is how we define sin here at Bible Center. Sin is any outward or inward failure to conform to the moral law of God, affecting our actions, attitudes, words, and motivations. As sovereign and holy, God establishes the moral law as a reflection of his righteous nature. Therefore, we sin when we violate his law or anything consistent with his nature. Let's talk about sin for just a minute. If you think about it, sin isn't something that, that God created. But actually, sin is simply a corruption of all that God created. Sin is a perversion by the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see, the devil's never created anything. But the devil in the world and even our flesh can take a good gift of God, even a good desire that God has given us. And if we go outside of the bounds that God has given us to exercise that desire, we quickly step into sin. Sin is an unnatural exaggeration of legitimate God-given virtues. Here's a few examples. Think with me. The drive for us to take dominion over the earth is something that God told Adam and Eve to do, and I believe we're still under that dominion creation mandate today. That's why I believe we should work hard. That's why I believe we should do our best to be good stewards of the earth and the resources that God has given us. But if we're not careful, if we step outside and exaggerate that God calling to take dominion, it can quickly turn into pride, where it becomes about our kingdom and becomes about our desires and not about God's desires. Another example is our drive for healthy sexual gratification. That's a gift from God. But when we step outside the bounds that God has given us into promiscuity or, or perverted lust, we've taken something beautiful and glorious and we're using it in a sinful way. Another example is even the drive for worship. God, according to Romans chapter 1, has put it in the heart of every man, woman, and child to worship, to give honor to someone or something. And so we, if we take that God-given desire and we begin to worship money, possessions and things and prestige and popularity, all of a sudden, a good desire has turned into a sinful action. Sometimes these disordered drives, they, they cross-pollinate into all sorts of monsters. Now, no matter how old you were when you put your faith in Jesus, of course, I'm speaking now to Christians, no matter how old you were, the Bible tells us something about our condition 
prior to becoming a follower of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now here in this verse, when it talks about the flesh, satisfying the, the cravings of our flesh, this is the word that the Bible uses to refer to that part of us uh, that is broken, that part of us that still lives under the domination and the curse of sin. Now, before we put our faith in Christ, that is on the throne of our hearts. But the moment we believe the gospel, the moment we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was, he was buried and that he, was, he rose from the grave to save you and me, the moment we put our faith in Jesus, the God who loved the world, who gave his only begotten son, the moment we trust in him and call on the name of the Lord to be saved, we get what the Bible says is a new nature. We are given a new heart. The Holy Spirit of God comes and lives within us. That's why the Bible says that we become a new creature or a new creation. But even though that's true, even though we put our faith in Christ, and I would encourage you, if you've not yet put your faith in Christ, do that today. But the moment we do that, it doesn't mean that instantly we become perfect. Actually, we're not going to be without sin, the Bible teaches, until we get to heaven. But we actually begin the process of learning to say no to that old flesh, that old nature that in some way is still a part of our life and yield to the Holy Spirit and the new nature that he has given us. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 has something to say about us if we, if we claim that we don't have any sin anymore. He says, writing to Christians, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we claim we have not sinned, we make him a liar, out, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19 says this. He's writing to Christians. Paul is writing to the church of Galatia. Notice what he says. The acts of the flesh, church, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul never says in his word that those who commit one of these sins or one of these actions are somehow not saved or they're not on their way to heaven. He's simply saying those who live, it's in the present tense, those who can continually live a life like this without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, without desiring to confess their sin and come back to Jesus in fellowship, those who live that kind of life are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. 
But in context, writing to Christians, this is important for us to see. Apart from ultimately denying Christ, a genuine Christian is capable of any sin that a non-Christian can commit. Apart from ultimately denying Christ, get this, the Bible teaches, specifically in the New Testament, a genuine Christian is capable of any sin that a non-Christian can commit. And so that applied to us before we put our faith in Christ. But I'm sure, I'm confident, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, as I have, we have committed sins that actions, we have done things that we regret even after we've put our faith in Christ. I'm so thankful that Jesus came, not only to save the Matt friend before I trusted Jesus, but also to transform the Matt friend who has since trusted Jesus. Why does the world need Christmas? Because of Adam and Eve and because of our actions. But there's one last reason that I want to point out why the world needs Christmas. I know it's why I needed Christmas, that first Christmas, and and why you needed that first Christmas. Number three, because of our attitudes. Because of our attitudes. In the late 19th century, many Christians believed that it was possible for Christians to reach what they called sinless perfection. They could live a life somehow without sin. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism early in his life and even early in his Christian life, believed and taught this truth. Many of his followers took it to an extreme that he never did, but by the end of his life, he realized this was impossible. He realized this was not true and it's not what the Bible teaches. But many of us are inclined to think that sin is somehow a rare exception in our lives. Now, if we define sin only as actions of willful disobedience, such as against the Ten Commandments, we will tend to think that we go days and days and days, perhaps, without sin. As long as we don't lie and steal and commit adultery, we're good to go, or at least we think we're good to go. But when we get into the attitudes We're going to find that the New Testament actually talks a lot more about our heart attitude, about the the darkness of our hearts, the motivations of our hearts. Even if we do actions totally right on the outside, like the Pharisees did in many ways, Jesus had so much to say about the sinfulness of their heart, their attitudes, their frame of mind. Consider these truths with me. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest missionary who's ever walked the face of the earth. He said, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He wrote this when he was the leading cutting edge missionary in the first century. It's not talking about what he used to be before he accepted Jesus. He didn't say, I was the worst. He said, no, I am the worst. I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 7. If you think that you have it all together and that it's been a long time since you've sinned, 
Read Romans chapter 7. It'll challenge you. If, if you think you're the only Christian who's ever struggled with temptation and sin since you became a Christian, read Romans 7. It'll encourage you. The Apostle Paul says he admits the things that I want to do, sometimes I don't do. And the things that I don't do, those are the sometimes the things that I want to do. And he goes on this chapter-long tirade of how sin is ever-present even in the Christian life. And if we're not careful, it will infect and affect our attitudes. Galatians chapter 5 again in verse 22 says this, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. He's just talking about the opposite of the works of the flesh. And so if we want to know what, what sinful attitudes are like, we just do the opposite of these. He says the fruit of the Spirit is forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, Paul's writing to Christians, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, Christians, provoking and envying one another. Now I'm curious, over the last year, over the last month, over the last week, have you been guilty of provoking and envying someone else. God says that's possible even for a Christian. And so the blood of Jesus Christ not only forgave the sins that we committed before we were Christians, but the blood of Christ continues to wash our sins away, to take our sins away and continue to transform us from the inside out. But first we have to acknowledge We've got to identify these sinful attitudes in our life. The Bible says over in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood. In other words, don't stop trying to be somebody you're not. Just be you, but speak truthfully with your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In other words, don't lie just to make yourself look good. Don't say something about a coworker. Don't say something about an employer. Don't say something about a family member. Don't say something about a friend that's not true just because you're embarrassed. Just because you're trying to make yourself look good. Don't do that. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And don't give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. In other words, don't steal, don't cheat, don't commit extortion, trying to take something that's not yours. This is the, this is the epitome of, of sinfulness, of a dark darkness in our hearts. But we must work doing something useful with our own hands, that they may, that they may have something to share, that we may have something to share with those who are in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. 
Get rid of all bitterness. Here's these, more of these attitudes. Bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Whether it be against your wife, against your husband, against your children, against your neighbor, against a family member, against a fellow church member. God says, don't let these attitudes take root in your heart, but be kind and compassionate one to another. Forgiving one another, just as Christ, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 deals with these categories of attitudes. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Something that's so common, it's almost institutional in our society. Greed and covetousness, which is idolatry. I would encourage you, if you want to know more about what Jesus said about these things, you can read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. Jesus talked about not just the actions of sin, but he talked a lot about the attitudes of sin. He goes so far as to say if you hate someone, it's, it's as if you're committing murder against them in your heart. He says if you lust after someone, it's though you're committing adultery with them in your heart. These attitudes matter to God. Now what about, what about the commands that God has given us that um, we sometimes forget about? You know, we Christians at times, we have these categories of sins, the big sins and the little sins. And so if we only define sin with these certain categories... It's easy for us to think that we don't continually live affected by the flesh. But we actually do. I do. You do. And so if you're thinking you're still doing pretty good, I don't know how it's possible, but if you think up to this point in the sermon, you're still doing pretty good, doing pretty well, look with me at a few other commands of Jesus. Mark 12, 30. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. This morning when you got up, up until this moment when you're watching this message, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart? Through this pandemic, when stresses have been high and and tensions have been high and moods have been swinging back and forth, have you loved your neighbor as yourself? God says these are the two greatest commandments. And when we put ourselves up next to the light of these commandments, we see that our hearts are still deeply affected by sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. This is an easy one, or so we think. For whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When you had breakfast and you poured your Cheerios, poured your coffee today, did you do it all to the glory of God? I'm thinking back this morning, I had 
one dog that needed out and was barking at the neighbors and like 5.30 in the morning. And so I pulled the one dog in and he had muddled in his paws. And then I go up and get the other dog because the other dog upstairs heard the other dog barking and the other dog wanted to go outside. And so I took the other dog out who started barking around the, by the neighbors. And, and I bring the other dog in and then I've got one of our children, our eight-year-old gets up because the dogs are barking. I, I can tell you right now that I was not thinking this morning about doing all that I did for the glory of God. I wish I did, but every thought I thought this morning before 6 a.m., I can guarantee it wasn't totally for the glory of God. What does that tell me? It tells me that even though I'm a Christian and I'm on my way to heaven, my, my heart and my life is still deeply impacted by my flesh. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How have we done through this pandemic? If you believe that you are a mature Christian, if you believe that you have really just grown so much, Compare your life to this. And when I compare my life to this, when you compare your life to this, quickly we realize that we have a long way to go. Many of us see ourselves as fundamentally good people who try to do the right thing and miss the mark occasionally. However, an honest look at the Bible and our own hearts reveals that we are fundamentally sinful people who only do good by the grace of God. One of the men in our, in our discipleship group texted this out to the discipleship group this morning, and I just had to include it today in this particular message. It's by C.S. Lewis. I love the C.S. Lewis quote. When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. But when a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. What's the big idea of today's message? What's the thing that I want you to remember if you remember nothing else? As we approach this Christmas season, remember this. Here's the big idea. When we see our desperate need for Christ, we'll see our desperate need for Christmas. When we see our desperate need for Christ, this is, this is those, of, those of you who have yet to put your faith in Christ. You're not yet a Christian. You've not chosen to follow Jesus. You desperately need Jesus. But those of us who've crossed the line of faith and we've turned and given our life to Christ, that wasn't the end of our salvation. But that was just the starting line of the Christian life. We still desperately need Jesus every single day. And when we see our desperate need for Christ, we'll see our desperate need for Christmas. Here's what I want you to do this week. What I hope you'll do throughout this season. I hope that as you approach the Christmas season, that you'll see your desperate need for Christ. And I want you to see Christmas with all new eyes. My prayer is that you'll see Christmas as See past the commercialism, seek past the, uh, all, the, all the lights and, and the glitz and the glimmer that the world tries to put on it, but see past all of that 
to the true meaning of Christmas and how Jesus came to save you in your desperate condition. This may look differently for different people, but for you, maybe it's just simply slowing down and thinking about what Jesus has saved you from and is still transforming you, saving you from. Maybe for you, it's just simply appreciating each Christmas tradition with a little more intentionality. Maybe it's just simply trying to soak in every song, every scripture reading this year with new eyes as if every single one of them is for you. Because Jesus did come for you. Maybe it's turning from your sin to Christ. Maybe it's confessing your sin to God or confessing it to a close friend and asking them to pray with you and to help you as you seek to be more like Jesus. Maybe it's simply enjoying as much as Christmas as you can. But whatever this means for you, when we see our desperate need for Christmas, we'll see our desperate need our desperate need for Christ, we'll see our desperate need for Christmas. I'm thinking of that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And as you hear this song played, think about these words written so many years ago. As this songwriter longed for Christmas, but more importantly, this songwriter longed for Christ. Think of these words. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou dayspring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death-dark shadows put to flight. O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. O come, Adonai, Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. When we see our desperate need for Christ, this year may we see our desperate need for Christmas. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.